Then I saw this picture. It's obviously been photographed, or uh, photoshopped rather, but it's a little bit too far. Owners and their dogs having the same hairstyles, looking, you know, the same attire on. But uh, anyway, imitation. We're going to be talking about imitation today as we look at this New Testament book of Philippians. Paul has already brought up the issue of imitating uh, those who are pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. And he began this letter with encouraging words to his audience. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as we saw in chapter 1, that, that phrase, your manner of life, has at its core the word citizen. And so you could literally translate this phrase, let your public life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's writing to his friends in Philippi where they're expected to imitate the manners and customs of Rome. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony, a little Rome. They spoke like Romans, they dressed like Romans, they ate like Romans, the architecture looked like Rome. They were expected to imitate Rome. And so here we are today looking at this passage in which the Apostle Paul is going to call his friends to imitate those who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so we're going to look through this passage today and think about what it means to us specifically as we think about what it means to imitate a heavenly city. So we're going to go ahead and call our study today Heavenly Citizenship. And as we look at this passage, I want you to, to be on the lookout for two contrasting citizenships that are mentioned here and two contrasting examples. We'll start with the latter. Paul starts out in verse 17 saying, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. That phrase, join in imitating me, could literally be said, go all in together in imitating me. He wants the community of Jesus' followers living in Philippi to be all in as they join together in seeking to imitate Paul. And someone says, well, I'm sure Paul is a great guy and everything, but isn't it a bit arrogant to tell others to imitate you? I mean, nobody is perfect. You probably feel this tension, don't you? I know if, if I were to tell someone to imitate me, I, I'm aware all too much of how... I don't follow Jesus perfectly, and there are things in my life which are not worthy of imitation. So Paul in saying this uh, is not claiming perfection. Remember, in, in the passage that just went before the one we're looking at today, Paul says not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Again, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so even though Paul realizes he's not perfect, he knows that he's running the race. He's seeking to follow Jesus, and he's all too aware, not only as a Christian, but as an apostle, that he is a gospel pace setter. He knows that eyes are on him, especially as he sits in prison awaiting his trial before uh, Caesar. Later in this letter, he's going to say, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The book of 1 Corinthians, um, he said basically just very blatantly, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so we want to be examples of what it means to follow Jesus in our particular callings as we follow Jesus. None of us are perfect. But like Paul, we want to press on in this race. So he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
a little phrase, keep your eyes, comes from a Greek word that basically means to scope out, to observe, to contemplate, to fix your eyes upon. We could say scope out or search out those who walk according to the example that you have in us. See, Paul knows that you and I need some really good examples of people who follow after Christ. We need examples of fathers who are seeking to be godly fathers, of mothers who are seeking to be godly mothers. We need single people who are seeking to to follow Jesus as single persons. We need examples all around us. And Paul knows there are lots of negative examples that are pressing in on them from all sides. He says in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even in tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Let's take this apart just a little bit here. He says, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Who is he speaking about here? Well, he doesn't define it, but it could be he's speaking about the Judaizers because he has been warning them about those who are seeking to add to Jesus works of the law. Remember, it's not enough just to be believing in Jesus, but you have to become Jewish to follow the Jewish Messiah. So it could be he has these people in mind. These were people who, like Paul, claimed to follow Jesus, but unlike Paul, insisted that you had to become Jewish in order to do so. And so Paul has very little patience for these people because he feels like they're preaching another gospel. And if they were to listen to what these Judaizers are saying, they'll lose Jesus completely. He might be thinking about not Jewish people who are claiming to follow Jesus, but his own kinsmen who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, the Gospel of Luke tells us that uh, they were claiming that they did not want this man to rule over them. Remember when Jesus was standing next to Pilate and Pilate was asking the crowd what they wanted to do with him. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. What an amazing claim that is, right? These are Jewish people who claim to have no king but God, but in this moment, to buddy up to Pontius Pilate, they said, we have no king but Caesar. So he brings up the notion of Caesar. I wonder if Paul is thinking about that wicked Nero, who he's waiting to see and hear his trial. But remember, Nero was this narcissistic psychopath uh, who killed family members. Um, most, I don't want to say most, many historians believe that he's the one who's actually responsible for setting Rome on fire, and he blamed the Christians on this. That began the first real intense persecution of Christians. Remember, it was Nero who would take Christians and tar them and crucify them and set them on fire to light his garden parties. I mean, this guy, if there's ever an enemy of the cross of Christ, it would be him. Paul would describe people in general like this in his day. He says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So when Paul talks about those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, that that phrase, cross of Christ, just might be shorthand for the gospel itself. He preaches Christ, this crucified and risen king. And he says, look, there are many people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But what I want you to see is Paul doesn't gloat over this issue. Like we are the 
We're the special ones, and, and they're the, the unspecial ones. He doesn't even call fire down from heaven. Do you see what he says here? He says, there are many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even in tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is a good example, isn't it? To think about those, even in our day, who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. People who have an anti-Christian mindset. How do we think about them? We should imitate the Apostle Paul and see them, even in their opposition to the gospel of Christ. See them through tears. Remember Paul, at one point, was traveling, he went to Athens, and we're told that he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I mean, he was, he was provoked within to see people worshiping these statues. He spent a couple years in Ephesus, training Christians in the early church there. And on his departure, he said these words, Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you night and day with tears. And Paul was deeply concerned about people. And there's this wonderful passage, it's, just, it's quite amazing in many ways, in the book of Romans, where Paul, thinking about his, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who, who don't follow Jesus, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So when Paul talks about people who are not Christians or, or anti-Christians or who, walk according, or who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's saying this through tears. See him with tears falling down his face. He goes on and describes them further. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Let's list these as bullet points. He says that their end is destruction. I mean, Paul knows as they continue on the track that they're on, this is not going to end well with them. In his letter to the Thessalonians, he said, they will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. If these people in this life can uh, persist in, in not wanting Jesus, when Jesus comes with his kingdom, he's not going to force them to enter. Instead, they will be banished. He also says their God is their belly, which is a, it's a weird phrase for us, but in antiquity, this was a phrase that was often used to describe people who are just ruled by their uh, appetites. In fact, the book of Romans says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. You can think of, obviously, food and drink, but you can think of things like uh, greed as well. I mean, all these appetites that, that we crave, People are ruled by them. He also says that their glory is their shame. I don't know if he had this particular passage in Jeremiah in mind, but there's this time in the, in the history of the people of Israel, the history of Jesus' people, in which they went through this very, very dark time, and God sent prophet after prophet to, to call them back to their senses, to, to seek to restore their sanity. Everyone was doing what was right according to their own eyes. And here in the book of Jeremiah, it asks this question, Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. That wasn't a vivid description. Then he says their minds are set on earthly things. And Paul's not saying that earthly things are bad. I mean, earthly things have been given to us by God as a gift, things to enjoy. But not to have our hearts set on them. 
See, when our hearts are set on anything but the living God, it becomes an idol, a functional idol. Idols are not just things that people worshipped in antiquity, building poles or, or wooden statues to worship. These are things that can rule our hearts now. So Paul writes to the Colossians. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so as Paul thinks about the crucified Jesus, that cross on which he died, with tears running down his face, he said there are many people today who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, which is really ironic because the cross shows us the love of Christ that propelled him to die even for his enemies. So Paul says there are negative examples that they could follow. He doesn't want them to follow after them to put their eyes on good examples, people who are following hard, running the race of the Christian life. And then he says in verse 20, something very interesting. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's think of this first phrase here. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I know a lot of times when we read this, we think, okay, this means that when we die, we go to our home in heaven. And that's not untrue. I mean, that is, that is true. When we die, we go to heaven. But I want to contend this is probably not what would have entered their minds to begin with. Now, to think about this, remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a little Rome. Philippi was some 800 miles away from the city of Rome. And when this city was um, established by Roman generals, they, they allowed this to be a place where some of their retired soldiers could go and they could live. And so this was a little Rome away from Rome. And so as I mentioned earlier, they spoke as the Romans did. They ate as the Romans did. They drank like the Romans did. They dressed like the Romans did. They played sports like the Romans did. So when you went to Philippi, it felt like you were living in Rome. And as a colony, their occupation really was to imitate Rome and to spread that culture of Rome to the surrounding areas. And so just as the residents of Philippi were expected to act like Romans, so too were the Romans, or I'm sorry, the Christians in Philippi expected to act like citizens of heaven. In other words, the Christians were a colony of heaven living within the colony of Philippi. Or to put it like this, residents of the Roman colony of Philippi were to live out their citizenship in a manner worthy of what was called the eternal city of Rome. And Christians of the Roman colony of Philippi were to live out their citizenship in a manner worthy of the eternal city of heaven. So when Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, they are residing physically there in Philippi. But he wants to remind them of their true home. And they are to reflect their citizenship right now, their heavenly citizenship, right now where they live. Now, I've had the opportunity to live in, in several different foreign countries, in Peru and in Canada. And as an outsider, I was always aware that my manner of life as an American living in their midst, um, spoke about all Americans. And so, uh, as you can imagine, they have certain stereotypes of Americans from the media, and some of those are not so good. And so I was very conscious, though, of, of carrying myself not only as a Christian, but as, as an American in those places. And so the same principle applied here. These, these citizens living in Philippi who are following Jesus are to represent their heavenly country. And so Paul calls them to say, our citizenship is in heaven. Remember that. And he says, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that makes total sense to us. But Paul is intentionally putting his finger on a pulse that was going on in their culture. And if you've been with us in the book of Philippians, you know what's going on here. And Jesus, I'm sorry, and Paul using these phrases about Jesus, calling him Savior, Lord, the Christ, he's actually using phrases that were applied, first of all, to Caesar Augustus that people are now using to describe Nero. And they are the Son of God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Savior of the whole world. And so if you were to say in the Roman Empire that Jesus is Lord, that he is the king, that he is the savior of the world, that can get you in trouble because that means your loyalty, your ultimate loyalty is not to Caesar and to Rome. And if you say that loud enough, it will get you into trouble as it did the first century Christians who had to pay for their confession of faith with their very lives. So Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's interesting that Paul adds what is in our Bibles, verse 21 here, because it would have, been, it would have made total sense for him just to stop at the end of verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if Paul, as we've seen him wrestle in this book of Philippians with what might happen to him, wonders if he has to pay the ultimate price to give his life for the message of the gospel, what will happen to him? And so as he reflects on that, he's, 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 he's all in on Jesus. He's all in with Jesus, this crucified and risen Savior. And so he adds this phrase here, Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So you see, my friends, in the resurrection, when Jesus makes all things new, we will receive new, physical, glorified bodies, just like Jesus did in the resurrection. And this is so, this is so cool. A lot of Christians think that we're going to be just disembodied spirits living on and on forever, and that is not the case. If you believe in Jesus, you will receive a glorified body. You say, well, what if, what if I'm cremated and my, and my ashes are scattered? Or, or what if I'm, I'm eaten by worms? That's no problem. This God who called this world into existence by the word of his power is able to subject all things to himself, to reconstitute bodies, and not just simply bodies, but glorified bodies, incorruptible bodies, just like Jesus had upon his resurrection. And so we are going to be flesh and blood forever. Even though outwardly we waste away right now. I remember when I was uh, growing up, and I hit 18 years old, and the first time playing baseball, my arm got sore. I played baseball for a good number of years. I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> and it's kind of been downhill since then in terms of aches and pains. And some of you who are over 18 probably know what I'm talking about there. And so uh, I'm looking forward to a glorified body. <laughs> that doesn't break down anymore, that is meant for a new physical world. In fact, the Apostle Peter said, according to his promise, that is Jesus' promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not only will we have glorified physical bodies, but we'll be on a physical glorified terra firma. And if you would oppress me, I don't have a Bible verse for this, but I think that that body is going to be capable of living on other planets as well in this redeemed and in a glorified new creation that's described as new heavens and new earth. So Paul says in verse 
1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand thus firm in the Lord, my beloved. We're going to look at this a little bit more next week, but he just piles on descriptions here. You can see the affection that he has for people. But he wants them to stand firm in the Lord, keeping their eyes on the prize, noticing those who are running hard after Christ, seeing them as examples, trying to imitate them, remembering that their citizenship is in heaven, and it matters the way they live their public life here and now in Philippi, as it does for us here and now in Bryan College Station. So let me just give us a a couple points of application here. The first one is this. Let's eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you an honest question. Is this a reality right now in your life? Do you eagerly await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you, do you believe that that's happening in the future at some point? But is this something that you crave? I remember when I was younger, I was like, Jesus, I know you're coming back, but I'd like to live a little bit, you know, maybe get married, raise some kids. And uh, if, if you're there, I, I get that. Um, but I guess as I've gotten older, as I've walked through pain and suffering in my own life, as I've seen friends bury their own kids, as I continue to see the onslaught of the bad news in this world, I want Jesus to come back. <laughs> and if he comes back today, I would be really happy. I know some people like Jason and Gabby who are getting married and might be like, wait a little bit, Jesus. But anyway, I'm just joking. They're family. But do you wait eagerly for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is this something that you crave? Is this something that, that you're anticipating? <laughs> like a little child might be anticipating Christmas Day. At the end of the scriptures, the second to last verse in the Bible, the Apostle John says about Jesus, he who testified to, the, to these things says, surely I am coming soon. <laughs> And John in exile says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And I think for those of us who are not experiencing intense persecution, who it really doesn't cost very much in terms of us to live out our Christian life here in Bryan College Station, can maybe just fall into a lull, having our hearts set on the things of this world where we actually don't hunger and thirst for the return of Jesus Christ. Here the Apostle Paul encourages us to cultivate that. And so, my friends, as C.S. Lewis said, there are far better things ahead than anything we leave behind. Someone says, but see, this is the problem. Christians are sometimes so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Have you heard that phrase? And sometimes that is the case, sadly. Sometimes Christians are, are so isolated and in their own enclaves that they have no interaction with this world. They're not telling us about Jesus. They're not seeking to alleviate uh, the suffering of this world. But C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. He said, if you read history, you'll find out that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. So friends, let's eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a second point of application. Let's live out our heavenly citizenship as a colony of heaven right here in Bryan College Station or in Lano if you're visiting from Lano or wherever you call home. Let's live out our heavenly citizenship as a colony of heaven right here in Bryan College Station. That means we're to remember that our ultimate home is heaven for those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to carry the savor of heaven with us wherever we go. I love how a couple of commentators put this. 
They write, Paul is telling the Philippians that the church is a little colony of the kingdom of heaven. When you see people taking care of the vulnerable, caring for orphans, doing all that is good and right and true, giving to the poor, speaking edifying words to one another, outdoing one another in showing honor, showing no hospitality or racism, putting the needs of others ahead of their own, you should say, this smells like heaven. We should be giving the world a glimpse of what's coming in the future. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said when he said, we are the aroma of Christ. I thought about this last week. I thought about that verse this last week when I was having breakfast with um, our elders, Dan and Todd, and we were at a local restaurant here, and our waitress came up to us to take our order, and I saw that she had three or four visible tattoos, and I just made the comment. I said, it looks like you've been collecting tattoos. And she said proudly, I have 11 of them. And I asked her which one was her favorite, and she told me about that. And we talked a little bit about her tattoos, and then she finished up our order. And then um, she came back towards the end of our meeting together, and she says, are you guys with a church? And I said, yes, we're with Mercy Hill. And she said, well, where do you guys meet? I said, we meet in this little hotel down the road, the Hilton Garden Inn. And, um, and then Todd said, uh, you should come check us out sometime. And we meet at 10 o'clock on, on Sunday mornings. And she said, well, I work on Sunday mornings, um, so I can't, I can't make it to church. And I, just in that moment, just asked a question. I said, you know, pardon me if this is too private, but I'm just wondering, are you a follower of Jesus, or are you exploring faith, or how would you describe yourself? And she took a sigh in that moment. She said, well, I'm from a small town in which um, there's just a couple of churches, and everybody knew everybody, and everyone in those churches were hypocrites. She said, those were the most unloving people that I've been around. They, they act like they're followers of God. And she says, I believe that God is a God of love, and then he calls us to love people, and he himself loves people. And those people were the most unloving people that I knew. And I told her, I'm sorry, that's been your experience. I said, I've been around some Christians like that. And I said, it's one thing to not be a perfect Christian, and it's another thing to just use Christianity to build your own image or whatever. And she said, you're right. Um, she said, it's like on Sunday mornings here at the restaurant. People come in after church and they're all dressed up. And I know they've come from just worshiping God and then they cuss me out because I get their drinks wrong. I just said, I'm so sorry. That's been your experience of Christians. And so I don't know what the rest of her story is going to be, but um, I thought about this phrase, the aroma of Christ, how, call, how Paul calls us to, to live our, our heavenly citizenship right here and right now wherever we find ourselves. And her experience with Christians has not been those who live out their heavenly citizenship. And so, that's tragic. Let that not be said of us. I hope if, if you're out at a restaurant and somehow they ask you, do you go to church or if you're a Christian, that you'll give an extra bonus tip on top of that just to show that Christians who follow Jesus, who is generous in heart, should be among the most generous people around. So my friends, let's eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's live out our heavenly citizenship as a colony of heaven right here in Bryan College Station. And here's the third and final point application. Let's imitate those who are imitating our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as you seek to grow as a disciple of Jesus, it's helpful to see what it looks like in the lives of others. I mean, Paul is very aware of this. He knows his friends in Philippi need that. He knows that any follower of Jesus needs to have that. So who, my friends, can you look to 
say, that person is following Jesus. That person has been a godly parent. I want to I find out how Christianity informs their parenting. That person, as a single, is, is living a beautiful life for Christ. I, I wonder if I can pick their brains and figure out how those two things go together. Who are you looking to? My friends, is anyone looking to you to imitate in following Christ? Sometimes you might be the only gospel that people are able to read. So we're going to sing a song in a minute that has these words. How I long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the street to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity. And then it has this phrase about being with those who've gone before us and following Jesus. It says, on that day, we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith, faith and with one voice, a thousand generations sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain, forever he shall reign. My friends, we take our place in those thousand generations following Jesus. Those who've gone before us setting the example. Those of us who are alive right now with people coming behind us, we're setting the example of what it means to follow Jesus. And so my friends, may God enable you to live out your heavenly citizenship as you eagerly await the coming of our Lord Jesus.